0: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. Let us pray. O God, by the humiliation of your Son, you lifted up this fallen world from the despair of death. By his resurrection to life, grant your faithful people gladness of heart and the hope of eternal joys, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 17 through 21. If you call on the Father, who judges impartially according to the work of each person, conduct yourselves during the time of your pilgrimage in reverence, because you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, not with things that pass away, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." This is the word of our Lord. The early Christian church gradually, over time, ironed out a church year to teach various things. And we are in the season of the Sundays after Easter when we focus on Christ's resurrection, the appearance, and what that means for us. Now. The gospel history for this Sunday is when Jesus appears to the disciples who are on their way from Jerusalem to their town, which is Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're talking. They've heard the women have said that they saw the resurrected Lord. And what does this all mean? And Jesus appears to them having hidden himself. So they don't recognize him as Jesus. He doesn't do this to be tricky. He does this for their benefit. This is an important lesson for us to learn. Many Christians want God to talk to them directly and give them revelations and everything. That's not how God chooses to work. Christ comes and shares with them the word which would be the Old Testament as we call it, about the predictions of his death and resurrection so they would understand why it was that he had to become a man and die for us. And it's not until he's given them that full explanation, strengthened their weak and confused faith, that he actually privileges them with recognizing that they are some of the first people to get to see the resurrected Lord on the day that he actually raises. So we see Christ had hid himself, revealing himself only through the word. And now we live in a time where Christ has come and he's hid himself primarily working through the word, and that's where he's revealing himself until the day of the great revelation when he returns to give us the new heavens and the new earth. So today we'll ask the question, how shall we live while waiting for the full revelation of Christ? And to answer that question, I will preach on my translation of the inspired Greek language that the Apostle Peter uses. Again, I don't think it's superior to other translations that are available, but I just want to bring out the subtle nuances that are there in the Greek language. So verse 17 gives us the first answer of how we live while waiting for the full revelation of Christ. We're told, and so if you call upon the Father who judges impartially according to each person's work, conduct yourself during your time of temporary residence within the boundaries of Christian fear." Now, the Apostle Peter says this as a conditional clause. If you do, then do that. But in grammatically, it's a first-class condition, so he actually is assuming they are Christians. He knows he's writing to Christians. So we could translate this, since you call upon the Father. And he tells us then how we are to live as children of God, and that's conduct yourselves during your time of temporary residence within the boundaries of Christian fear. The word that we translate as conduct yourself or live in the original Greek language is a verb that means be turned upwards, and it's passive, so somebody has to turn us upwards. If you don't understand original sin, you're not going to understand what Peter is telling us in this verse, and you'll get confused with the very work righteousness that Peter is talking against in these verses. To be turned upward means By original sin, originally, we're focused on the wrong things in life. We're downward-looking. Not looking down upon the earth as if we're better than it. We're downward-looking as if everything the earth has to offer is the meaning of life. He who dies with the most toys wins. And we tend to be looking inward to ourselves. We have a saying, look out for number one. Even people I've met that, by the natural disposition God has given them, tend to be unselfish still, Tend to be inwardly looking. I can't tell you how many times I've had unbelieving friends who are very well-meaning say after they've done something good for a fellow man, something very unselfish, well it just makes me feel good. Well what's their motivation? It's still themselves. So the apostle Peter here tells us since we are children of the Father, we're to live our lives being turned by the world's standards upside down, by God's standards right side up. We're now living for heaven. And if you want to know what that's like, Peter reminds us right away during your time of temporary residence. We don't live in this world as if this is what it's about because we know we're citizens of heaven. We are temporarily here and we live for our heavenly citizenship and we view this world as temporary. And you always hear me say we got to pay attention to the Greek prepositions and it's that Greek preposition here that says only within these confines. So within the boundaries of, and the Greek word literally is fear. Now the Bible has two meanings for fear. There's the kind of fear that the unbeliever is going to have when Christ is revealed, when they go, oh boy, I've been working against this Lord, and he's the only God, because he's true God. And they're going to be afraid, and I'm going to hell, and I deserve it, and they know they deserve it. But when you're a believer, that word of fear means something totally different. Certainly we live our lives in fear that we lose our salvation, and so we continually go to the power source of our salvation, to where God is revealed to the word, and God leads us to do that. But we also live in in a reverent respect for God as well. My analogy limps, but when I was a child, my father, I could fear his discipline if I screwed up, but I also was my father. He held a spot that I respected, so oftentimes I obeyed out of respect for my father and didn't need the motivation of, or else I will be disciplined. And also, For example, my father let me use his tools to work on my bike and things like that, but out of respect for my father, I obeyed a couple of rules he had. I was to wipe his tools down when I was done, because he didn't want to reach down and get a handful of the oil from my bicycle chain, etc., and I was to put them up so he could find them. So God has given us a list of rules that now we don't follow these rules in order to be saved. We follow them out of reverent awe, so I call that Christian fear because he's now our heavenly daddy, he is our father. And so primarily we do that living looking upwards, being turned right side up by God, by living for God. The greatest act we give and the greatest act of worship we give in living for God is to trust in him for our salvation. And that's the first table of the law of the 10 commandments. The second table wants us to show God's love to our neighbors, love your neighbor as yourself. And so for example, during this coronavirus, who do you think gives God more glory? An ambulance-chasing attorney who makes millions of dollars, making blousy lawsuits against people so he can make money, but makes a lot of money. That would be turned upside down in God's eyes, focusing on the world. Or somebody who only makes minimum wage, scrubbing floors at a grocery store and sanitizing the shelves. We don't tell our children grow up to be janitors unless we're properly focused on God. And then we recognize God wants us to serve our fellow man by showing his love. So how shall we live while waiting for the full revelation of Christ? We live actually being turned upside down by the world standards, but right side up by God's standards, showing love for God because he's our father, that reverend awe. Ah, and it also involves showing love for our fellow man. Our first lesson for this third Sunday of Easter focuses on this as well. It's the Pentecostal sermon, at 50 days after Christ's resurrection. After the end of Peter's Pentecostal sermon to the crowd, we are told in Acts chapter 2, verse 46... Day after day, with one mind, they were devoted to meeting in the temple area. As they continued to break bread in their homes, they shared their food with glad and sincere hearts, and they continued praising God and being viewed favorably by all people. Day after day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now they were viewed favorably by all people, not because they went out of their way to change the word of God to appease people, no, it's because they showed Christian love as we just covered, for example, with the believing janitor. And you notice they looked out for each other. They broke bread. They had fellowship meals together. They took care of each other. But then when we're told at the beginning, day after day with one mind, they were devoted to meeting in the temple area. The temple had pointed to the coming Christ. And now Christ had come. So the sacrifices in the temple no longer needed to be made. And this would be the best use of the temple then as a reminder of that. And they came and they studied the word of God where they could hear the Old Testament lessons and they could Teach on them, and they were of one mind because they stood on the word of God. Now, the Apostle Peter in our sermon text ties in that connection with the temple that I said pointed to Christ, and he empowers us showing us how we live now that we've been turned right side up, focusing on God. He tells us the power source to do that. It's not ourselves. He says in verse 18, Since you have perceived that not with perishable silver or gold were you redeemed away from your useless conduct handed down from your fathers. The Greek noun that I translate as conduct is the same verbal root that means to be turned upside down. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, every generation was turned upside down. We tend to think of the worldly, and we tend to look out for number one. So the useless, being turned upside down way that our fathers handed to us is one of two religions. And truly, if you look at them all religions, there's only two religions. There's the true religion that points to Christ, and then there's the religion that's built into us. And sadly, many Christians end up getting confused, and they end up in, in the natural religion of man, the wrong one, the one that's handed down by our fathers. That is downward bent. It is focusing on the things of this world. It's the idea that if I want to get something from God, rather it's a job or a meal, or ultimately salvation then I've got to butter up God I do good for God and God will do good by me now if you had a neighbor who for example it snows and they just shovel your driveway and you go, oh thanks for shoveling my driveway oh it's okay you owe me you owe me one if you have a neighbor who's always doing good things for you but they're always expecting you to return the favor at what point in time are you not gonna see this person as a shyster Every religion that's invented by man teaches that you do something for God to get something from God, and it's the idea of you do a good work. We call that work righteousness, but it's useless. You see, if you have sin, no matter how much you even maybe benefit your fellow man, because of your sin, it still damns you to hell. And now let's get into the true religion, which tells us how we're redeemed, not by the things of this world that perish, we're told in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without defect and without stain. And that gets us right back to the Christians originally meeting at the temple until they were driven out. That temple with all of its sacrifices said, the wages of sin is death and one who does not have sin must take your place. Christ had to be true man in order to die, because God cannot die, so Christ took on human flesh. Yet, the God-man, because he is man, now can die, but as true God, his death would be so precious that it would atone for the sins of the world, and so the God-man dies for your sins to ransom you from the slavery of sin, death, and the devil. The ransom was paid to himself, to his own holiness. And, having washed you clean, the God-man rose to continue ruling as your savior. So, you are a redeemed child of God. You live as somebody who has been given the free gift of adoption. Now, it's a gift, but that doesn't mean it's cheap. It costs the very life of the God-man. So, we live as redeemed children of God. We recognize God gave us the gift of salvation. In other words, we don't do good works to get God's favor. God made us his children and put us in his favor, and now we live upward, heavenly, as the children of God. So how shall you live while waiting for the full revelation of Christ? Live being turned right side up. Live focused on heaven and showing God's love to others. Live as redeemed children of God. You have the blood of the Lamb all over you. You are worth more than gold and silver. Live with that blood of Christ. Show forgiveness to others. Live knowing you're redeemed. As I mentioned earlier, the first lesson for this Sunday after Easter is that Pentecost sermon. And the people in the crowd there on Pentecost Sunday that the 11 apostles are preaching to, Peter's leading them, Fifty days earlier than this, they were some of the people who shouted out, crucify, crucify. So after showing them their guilt, they asked, what should we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter answered them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to point out something before I continue. If you ever need a Bible passage that makes it clear that baptism gives you the forgiveness of sins, it's right here. Now, the last half of verse 38 tells us, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the Holy Spirit giving birth to the new person in you. And here's one of the ways we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39 of that sermon says, For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, just to allow me to digress, if you ever want a passage of scripture that makes it clear that baptism is for children... It's verse 39 of Acts chapter 2. Here, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, which deals with the resurrection of the Lord, we see that we live with the faith God has given us, and Peter covers that. Peter also does that in today's text. He's talking about Jesus in verse 20 when he says, Who certainly had been chosen in advance before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for your sake. God knows everything. Before God said, let there be light, God knew that the world would fall apart because of Adam and Eve falling into sin. He knew it was going to happen. If you want to know why he didn't prevent it, the only answer scripture gives that you need to know is because he had a plan. He planned that the Son would take on human flesh and redeem us. That was revealed to Adam and Eve after the fall when God said the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It continued to be revealed in fuller detail, although they had everything they needed to know while they waited for the full revelation when Christ took on human flesh. Now, you and I live in the time when Christ has taken on human flesh, died, and lived, so we're waiting for that revelation again, which is why we're asking our question. So he's been revealed at the end of time, and Peter says, for your sake. Christ took on human flesh for you. When you read the scriptures and the promises contained you have every right to say that's specifically for me. That's meant for me, while you recognize it's also specifically meant for everyone who comes to faith. So verse 21 says, you are believers in God through Christ. Wait, 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 wait. We got a problem here. Didn't I just tell you that, like for example, in baptism, that it's the Holy Spirit who gives you faith? Just as Jesus told Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit? Well, we have to recognize that no member of the Trinity does his work to the exclusion of the other two. So God's primary work is Father. Jesus's primary work is Savior. The Holy Spirit's primary work is is faith maker. But none of them work to the exclusion of the others. Jesus did the work of redeeming you, as we've already covered, by living his life perfectly for you, dying for you, rising for you. And actually, He then sends the Holy Spirit, as the Father does as well, as the Father has ruled over all time in history so that you would hear the message, and the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit to you to create that faith. And so he continues explaining how it is through Jesus. He says, God arose Christ from the dead and gave Christ glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. There's no point in having faith in Christ if he didn't rise. The empty tomb, the resurrected Lord is God the Father's receipt to you that your adoption has been paid in full because your sin has been removed. So you live in faith and in hope. Faith. That's the Holy Spirit living in your heart so that you give the greatest act of worship that you can to God. And that's to trust in Him, not your works for salvation. Now to go back to verse 17, God judges us impartially according to our works because our works are the evidence of faith. If our sin is there, God only sees bad, even if it benefits our fellow man. So your faith now, your faith is trusting in Christ for your salvation, not in yourself. And when you trust in Christ for salvation, you're gonna love over and over again Again, hearing that message that Christ is your savior, you're gonna love to come in shame to confess your sins, but then love to hear your sins are forgiven and in faith trust that by the blood of the lamb they're removed. Then he says, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now you've often heard me say that the way we use hope in English is really not good because hope usually means it would be nice if it would happen, but I highly doubt it. Christian hope is a confident expectation. You know that Christ died for your sins, and you know he's going to return and give you the new heavens. Hope for you is not a matter of if. It's not an if word for you. It's a when word. It's a matter of time. Scientists may or may not discover a vaccine for the coronavirus, but that in the long run doesn't matter. Because you know that God has promised, it's not by the coronavirus that he's going to destroy the world. It will be very clear that he's come back and he's going to destroy the world and create a new heavens and the new earth. And so the only apocalypse we need to even think about is when Christ returns and is fully revealed. So we confidently expect that our sins are forgiven. We confidently expect that God uses his word to assure us of our forgiveness and strengthen our faith. We confidently expect that whatever happens in this life, so long as we are trusting in Jesus and that trust is faith for our salvation, we confidently expect That the new heavens and the new earth are ours we confidently expect that even in our hardships we know that god is using them for our good so we see we live with your faith and hope in god which themselves are a gift from god so we began this sermon asking how shall we live while waiting for the full revelation of christ and we've seen you live being turned right side up from god's perspective You live now focused on your heavenly citizenship and showing love to God and showing love to your fellow neighbor, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. And that's the work that God judges us by. You live as redeemed children of God because Jesus has purchased and won you so that God is your heavenly father. And you live with your faith and hope in God, who has done these things for you. Amen. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great Shepherd of sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord God, our strength, our song, and our salvation, you fulfilled your promises by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Thanks be to God you give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In your compassion you sent Christ the Good Shepherd, who laid down his life to rescue the lost. Drive out all doubt and gloom that we may delight in your glorious triumph. Lift our eyes heavenward to see him who lives to make intercession for the saints, and grant us confidence in the greatness of his power. Keep before us the vision of your redeemed people standing before your throne and singing the song of victory. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive wisdom and power and honor and glory and praise. Make us instruments of your peace as we bring the good news of hope and new life to those around us. Guide us in the use of all that you have entrusted to us, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Risen Lord, live in us that we may live for you. Merciful Lord Jesus, grant healing to the sick and strengthen the faith of the suffering and the dying. Assure them of your abiding presence and comfort them with the hope of eternal life. Gracious Heavenly Father, as one of the sheep in our flock who formerly had cancer in her eye, now is going to travel this weekend in order to receive an injection to prevent further growth of that cancer, we pray that you bless both her travels and the procedure so that her cancer stays in remission. Gracious Lord, as our nation continues to struggle with the coronavirus, we pray that you work through the doctors and scientists to find a cure for this and to give us the many answers that we need. Lord, as our government has released a plan in which the states will individually implement according to their own infection and spread, We pray, Lord, that you allow us to do that in such a way that does not allow further spread. But we also pray, Lord, that you give a love for our fellow man, that American citizens and people throughout the world do the proper sanitary things that will help prevent the spread of this. Lord, the best thing we can ask for is that you rule over nature and put this thing into remission in whatever way you choose so that the fear can settle down. But Lord, through all this, we thank you that you have awoken a lot of people's eyes and we pray that you continue to work that they can see your love and concern even in this time of pandemic. In your son's name we pray. Hear us, Lord, as we bring you our private petitions. Gracious Father, you have restored to us the joy of your salvation. With happy hearts we come before you and say, Alleluia. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor, and give you peace. Amen.